This podcast contains adult themes and some strong language. Whatever you feel about computers, there is no going back to a world without them. She'd been flirting out in cyberspace. I review all material that contains any nudity whatsoever, personally. Yeah, I enjoy that. This woman who will call Jamie is an addict. Her drug of choice, the internet. Hello, I'm Endo Dowd, and this is Web 1.0, a podcast series from the Irish Times that looks at arguments and innovations of the early internet. Uh, if the pose was at a 40, 45 or greater degree angle away, I would consider that a work of art and probably post it. What is the internet but a thin veneer of social interactions underpinned by the beating heart of pornography? And in this episode, we look at how that heart is the breeding ground for innovation. And the question is, are our social systems stable when you turn the gain up? And we don't know. One professor said one thing to me during my undergrad. He said, there's nothing that's recession-proof. And I argued, yes, there is. I said, adult entertainment. This is Lee Noga. By the late 1980s, she had already done 10 years in the US Navy and received two honorable discharges. And during her time as a Navy medic, she tended to VIPs like US Vice President Herbert Humphrey. By the late 1980s, she had returned to college and become engrossed in the possibilities of the internet. We all had multiple phone lines coming into our home and people that happened to have the privilege of knowing how to access us and find us, they could come into my, into my server and download pornography. But there was no money in that, was there? There was money in it. People would privately to your postal box send you a check or something. This was the late 1980s, before the World Wide Web was launched, and Noga was running a BBS, or bulletin board system. So we dealt with images. At that time, bandwidth was really expensive in the 80s. You know, you can't have big files, right? So we had to really work with compression software and all that. So again, look at that. Compression software is what we had to have to stream images. It was the technology that drove me, that motivated, that excited me. I mean, I don't look at these discs. They do nothing for me. I'm a gay woman, for God's sakes. And straight porn is what's sold. So really have no interest. It was the whole technological climb. That's what I was chasing. Noga was also in touch with others in the adult entertainment business at the time, chatting on message boards and sharing ideas. Working together, they built a community. We collectively kept up with information we heard about arrests or whatever going on. And basically it was an intellectual think tank. You could also be exposed to what other people were doing, so you knew what it took to compete. You could also see where the industry was going and became our network. By the early 1990s, Lee had moved her BBS business offline by selling interactive CD-ROMs that people could download images from. So in 91, we started the CD-ROM publishing. So we released those like in 91, 92, and I incorporated in 93. By 1993, the company was selling 30,000 discs a month at $75 each. But that's when I was also sued for $16 million by Disney, Warner Brothers, Playboy. It goes on and on. Lee was involved in quite a few cases at this time, 
one of which was whether she had the rights to use the programs that ran on these CD-ROMs. So during the trial, it was like 10-day trial in Orlando. Great, the first pornographer ever tried. What do you think in the South happened to me? They threw the sink at me. They're putting blowjobs up on the big wall in the courtroom. Boy, that goes over well in the South in Florida. You know, he didn't have any money. The damages were $220,000. And that took me out. Around the same time Leonoga's pornography career had a courtroom setback, Gary Kieran was about to launch one of the most successful dating sites ever built. I made a credit card cash advance and I wrote some software with someone that would be able to receive pictures, send pictures, send a profile, all through email. So that was the genesis of Match.com. If you were born after the year 1995, the idea of online dating is part of the fabric of social interactions. But it was Gary's company, Match.com, that normalised that space. In the 90s and at the turn of the millennium, there was still an odd stigma around online dating. People thought it was weird to put their heart online. So it took some missionary selling. Besides a friendly, non-techie interface, Match.com features electronic mail, photographs, and a database. A new member completes a personal profile, which can be as detailed or as vague as she likes. The search for compatible partners can be just as detailed or not. But maybe the most important aspect is keeping the service safe. Our big challenge, which was put together a product that would exude safety and security, that and it wouldn't be dodgy. Were you able to crack that with it? Like, you know, yeah, like, we were able to crack it because we we hired a lot of women on our staff and we listened to what they had to say. Match.com claims over 100,000 subscribers, among which 30% are women. The goal was to find a way to make the service appeal to women. And we came up with the idea of anonymous profiles and stripping out people's email address. So there would be a, a level of anonymity to the whole experience. It was a phenomenally popular website. And in it, Gary built features that would become ubiquitous across the internet. You know, that stuff you see in Netflix or Amazon that suggests stuff. I was came up with one of those things, the collaborative filtering. I invented dynamic web pages, which is web pages that change. Everyone now does that. I came up with this algorithm, and I think it was the first double matching. Like, I had to fit your profile, but you had to fit their profile. This is how almost all dating and hookup apps work today. Both parties have to opt in or swipe right to open a chat option. But as Gary worked to create a safer, inclusive space, the wider society could be shockingly misogynistic and homophobic. They marched to demand a solution to the most pressing issue of their lives, AIDS. I've been discriminated against. I've been left on a surgery table, okay? And I was told that they would not do surgery on me because I was HIV positive. This is from a doctor's lips, okay? The AIDS epidemic of the 80s and early 90s emboldened homophobic behaviour, and it was rampant across the media and wider society at the time. Gary, though, worked to embrace the LGBTQ community. In the beginning, we, were, we weren't LGBT dating. I added that very soon after. I mean, that seems kind of like a trailblazing... Oh, it was extremely controversial. In fact, it probably led to me leaving the company. 
because I had big arguments with my board. You had to remember, and I'm going to give them the benefits of the doubt. I raised investor money and and I one day someone said, well, someone at one of my pension funds said, you could find LGBT dating on it and you need to remove that. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And they go, it's too embarrassing for them. In 1995, that was beyond what they could have a vision for. And uh, I said, I'm not doing it. And do you think that that was one of the that was one of the main reasons for it, or was it? That was definitely one of the reasons for it. They, you know, this guy is so uncooperative; he won't do what we tell us. You know, we're the board of directors; we tell the CEO what to do. And I said, it's a human rights issue. I'm not going to do that. Over Gary's objections, Match.com was sold for eight million dollars in 1997, and a year and a half later, it was sold for fifty million dollars to Ticketmaster. Gary got just fifty thousand dollars from the deal and a lifetime account on the site with his login being the founder. You know, sometimes you're early in stuff, sometimes you're late in stuff. What happened was I didn't make very much money. And, you know, I made money on other ventures I've done. You know, you probably know mm-hmm. the sex.com story. Yeah. Before we get into the sex.com story, I want to go back to 1993 and an internet convention that took place where people from across America came to meet face-to-face and network be seen and interviewed. We're going to try to show you what things you can do to make it less likely that the cops are going to bust down your door for either copyright infringement or obscenity charges. With me here today are a distinguished panel. Lee Noga is a manufacturer and publisher of of CD-ROM. Lee Noga was there as she just lost another court case. And part of her deal was she had to go to these conventions to warn pornographers of the risks of selling copyrighted material. And Lee's notoriety cemented her authority within the business. We started adult, hardcore, triple X penetration type images. We had no idea about what copyright was. We had no idea about obscenity laws or any of the negative ramifications that we're seeing now. I'm part of the problem. I wear a black hat this BBS con. Next year, I hope to wear a white one. I'm the publisher of Busty Babe, one of the four discs uh, involved in Oklahoma Raid. The case in Oklahoma Lee references is about a systems operator who sold CD-ROMs, one of which, Busty Babes, was Lee's. And the systems operator was found guilty of obscenity and sentenced to 25 years in jail, along with a fine of $32,000. The term was reduced to 10 years on appeal, but this just highlights the very real risks that people in the industry face at the time. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I stand sit here before you today to tell you, yes, I may be part of the problem, but my company as CD-ROM manufacturers are going to be part of the solution. And I'm here to tell you that we are now about to produce CD-ROMs that are going to be copyright infringement free. We're dealing in licensing photographers that shoot for the top 25 male magazines. So I was the first company to offer licensed content. I would fly to Cologne, Germany, which is a big place to make porn videos. And I would I would pay five bucks an image and they would give me 10,000 images. Each production I bought from them, but I couldn't process enough of it fast enough. And so if you saw legal images of pornography on the internet in the late 1990s, there was a very good chance they were sourced by Lee Noga. But Lee was still bankrupt at the time due to the previous court case. We ended up 
putting the company in receivership with the federal government. So basically the government ran my porn company for four years, not me, they did, so they could make all the money back. So that was interesting because I felt pretty safe because how can you prosecute me as things were heating up with the attorney generals when the federal government is running my porn company for four years? Go figure that one out. So then I sold another company and the lady never paid and that was that. So then I ended up working with Ron. The Ron here is Ron Levy. And Ron was one of the central innovators in the industry at that time. So he put me out in front of webmasters to talk to them about copyright infringement. Ron Levy had made several key innovations at the time, one of which was pay-per-click. Remember, this was before Google, and search engines were slow and gave poor results. So Ron encouraged webmasters or smaller websites to drive traffic to his payment site via links, with the hope the visitor would become a subscriber. The webmasters would in turn get paid per click for providing this traffic. Well, Ron launched his first pay-per-click program, I think around 96 in that area. Instead of going vertical, he went horizontal with the market and just tried to capture traffic and then bounce it to one of his flagship sites. And they all, you know, if you have 10,000 webmasters sending you two people to sign up, you're getting 20,000 signups a day. Ron Levy paid out millions of dollars to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds or thousands of webmasters. It's very hard to get concrete data at this time, but according to Ron Levy himself, over a five-year period between February 1996 and February 2001, his company paid out $250 million to webmasters. This is a phenomenal amount of money at a time when most websites struggle to turn a profit. He also faced down challenges from Visa and MasterCard at the time. So at that time, you know, the husbands got caught by the wives on the credit card and they said, oh, I didn't go there, my card was stolen. Back in the early 90s, the adult industry has so much negative stigmatism. So what credit card is going to sit there and tell this gentleman that works for, you know, some mainstream company that he's a pornographer lover? You know, the credit card would reverse the charges. So Ron had to develop the double opt-in system to combat that. You know, this is where Ron persevered through all of this. Double opt-in is where you get an email back to confirm your purchase. It's commonplace now on many online banking transactions and used for lots of sign-ins on social media sites. Ron Levy also developed the first counter that people put on their sites to rate traffic stats. This is, this is the big thing about our industry, what we did, our big contribution. We learned how to identify and wash our traffic. You know, we were the, the masters of analytics in traffic. Ron Levy was also very influential in popularizing live feeds in the industry. By 2000, he claimed to be sending out 5.2 million double opt-in emails every day. But Noga lived in constant fear of another police raid. I had cameras on the outside of my house in case the raid started. I had a hot button to destroy my hard drives. Some people got bullet holes in their houses. And then when I got confirmed that I was on the Department of Justice radar, really? One little woman, really? Do I scare you? Who, who was putting bullet holes in people's doors? Was that evangelical Christians or was this? Probably. But at the same time, too, that was exciting. Come get me. Come get me. 
I got something to say. I'm not done yet. But you know what? With what I have done, with what I've learned, I'd do it again. I would do it again. Before Lee Noga had to avoid bullets, and before Gary Kieram had to sell Match.com, he was looking at developing other services online. So I registered all the names in the classified jobs.com, property.com, housing.com. You just rang up a phone number and just... I yeah, them all you sent in a form, so you had to have email access to do it. They were free back then. You know, I wasn't cyber squatting. I was going to use them because my pitch to the investors was, let's go do cars.com. Let's go do um, property.com. Now, they said no. So all the names that Gary bought were folded into Gary's company, Electrix Classified. And as Gary secured investor money from Match.com, they looked at the company's other assets. They wanted all the names in the company. And I said, sure. But when they saw sex.com, they're going, oh, we can't have that. What if someone finds out? What if our auditors raised an issue? You go keep that, Gary. So the story there was, I didn't do anything with it. And then one day, it was gone. So, sex.com, the most prized domain name of internet pornography of the 90s, was stolen. Did you ever meet Stephen Cohen? Oh, yeah. I visited him in jail. I once sat down with him before he was put in jail for sure. When Stephen Cohn was released from prison in 1995, he wrote a letter to himself using the letterhead of Gary's company, Electric Classifieds. The letter said that Gary was fired from the company and no longer had the rights to sex.com. And Stephen Cohn was now authorised to take over the domain name. The letter also says, oddly, that Electric Classifieds, a company that ran websites, weren't themselves online. There was over 20 typos in the letter, including the word ads. And it was signed by a Sharon Dimmick. No one for that name had ever worked for Electric Classifieds. Regardless, Network Solutions, the company that ran domain names, granted sex.com to Stephen Cohen. So, so what kind of a man was he like? Was he like, you know, a Seuss kind of a guy or was he? Like- he, was a, he was a hands-on guy who knew something about technology. In fact, he, but he was, he was very smart. Like in the late 80s, he had a, a swingers bulletin board. When interviewed in 2004, one of Stephen Cohen's five ex-wives says, quote, when the guys arrested him at his swing club, they had to laugh because he came out in his robe and pipe and he was trying to be Hugh Hefner of swinging. Cohen went to trial over the club. He was able to jury trial and be found innocent because he said I wasn't making any money on it. So thus, I don't fall under the statute. In fact, he said under oath that Manuel Noriega made him a lawyer. Manuel Noriega was a military leader in Panama from 1983 to 89 and was a CIA informant before becoming a target for the US, who ousted him. As a character witness at a swingers trial in the US court, Noriega would have been a poor choice. What's he like? Is he, is he just a common criminal or is he... No, he's an, un, he's an uncommon criminal. Okay. He's, he's a criminal genius. Do you ever see the movie Catch Me If I Can? Yes, yeah. Like that. He's, that. he's just like that. I mean, he's the kind of guy, if he was legitimate, he would be a billionaire. And for all I know, he is because he was very early on Bitcoin. He was always about money laundering before he went to prison for, I think, the third time. He did a bunch of, he had offshore bank accounts before anyone even heard of these things. Probably all in Ireland. 
probably yeah. paying no taxes over there. Probably. How much money was he making at the time from well, the I know it, at least a million dollars a month wow. in, in, in 1998 dollars. So in, in 1998, he was making a million a month? Yeah. And he was doing that for two years? Oh, a, a couple of years until I was able to get a court order, and it took a long time. During this time, Cohen plastered the site with banner ads for other porn sites, and he was charging up to $50,000 per ad. How much money were you spending at the time in legal bills? Hundreds of thousands of dollars a month. And, and he was using my money that he was getting generated against me. Yeah, from your website or from your yeah. name and name. It was really ir ir irritating. Yeah. yeah, the judge, <laughs> you know, he didn't understand what was going on. The costs for Gary were huge, but he got some financial help from people within the industry, including from one Ron Levy. Stephen Cohen, though, used every con going to keep one step ahead. Like, for example, so he was able to change his caller ID to listen to my voicemail, to listen to the judge's voicemail, to listen to my lawyer's voicemail. He was that smart. The judge still believed it was an argument between pornographers until Cohen overplayed his hands. Uh, we were getting some of his financial records and they arrived a day late at one of my lawyers and she called and they were getting, co they were getting copied at a Kinko's, a third party copier. And she called up and says, where's our documents? And they said, well, you guys picked them up. And she was up in Oregon. It's like, you'd be in County Cork and she'd be in Ulster. And she's like, I'm in Ulster. I didn't drive down to County Cork. What are you talking about? And go, yes, you did. You picked them up. And she's like, no, we didn't. So when Stephen's bank accounts were subpoenas, the files had to be copied at a Kinko's, which was like an internet cafe at the time. But... Stephen went into the shop, impersonated Gary's lawyer, and took the documents he didn't want revealed. The kind of smart criminal he is, and he did a hundred things like that. This infuriated the judge, who eventually ruled in Gary's favour, and after a five-year court battle, Gary won back the domain name in November 2000, and was awarded $65 million in compensation from Stephen Cohen. Stephen, though, had moved his assets offshore and had fled the US from Mexico. Gary did get Stephen's seven-bedroom mansion in Rancho Santa Fe, the second wealthiest community in the United States at the time. What I got it? a house that he stripped in, so bad, took all the toilets out, took all the wiring behind the walls, took everything out. And this was just after 9-11. And you can see the two towers, a huge explosion now, raining debris on all of us. We better get out of the way! When two planes hit the Twin Towers in New York in September 2001, internet companies were reeling from an 18-month slide in value. And the following years brought something Lee Noga never predicted for the adult entertainment business, a downturn. Did 9-11 have a huge impact? It did, a lot of impact. Consumers were not in a, a recreational mode. There was so much hurt and upset that people weren't feeling to indulge themselves. So it kind of flatlined us a little bit as far as people wanting to spend money online. So the industry started collapsing. At the same time, Noga had just separated from her wife of 16 years and her house had been destroyed in a flood. 
Yeah, lawsuits took my funds. My wife left me because I, I was broke. It wasn't fun anymore. Nogan's sister and her mother-in-law remained living with her as she was too ill to move. Yet I've got her mother dying in a bed. You know, what do I do with all this? So shortly after all this upheaval, her life took a left turn. Years of pornography, then I was a nun. I, I, I was. I was a Franciscan nun. Yes, I was. I didn't go into a convent per se, but it was a type of church where you could be gay and we practiced Catholicism without prejudices, without marginalizing people like gay people, trans people, etc. 2006, I was thrown out, actually. No surprise there. Yeah, I, I failed the obedience part of the nun stuff. Didn't make a career of it. I'm pretty sure Ron Levy remarried and started a new family and is living in California at the moment. He disappeared online, which is common in the industry. Another person I wanted to talk to for this episode was Danny Ash. She worked as a stripper and adult film star in the 1980s. In the early 1990s, she taught herself how to code to build her own website. And by the end of the decade, she held the Guinness World Record for the most downloaded woman. By the end of the century, her site was making a $7 million profit per year. Now comes Super Bowl Sunday, more to drool over. Danny.com presents her bodacious Boob Bowl 3. Touchdown! And she also ran Boob Bowl, which was a live-streamed event that started in 1999, six years before YouTube was launched. Boob Bowl was first broadcast as an alternative to Super Bowl halftime ads and boosted subscriptions to Danny Ash's site by 50% in 1999 alone. The whole sexy breast-bearing shebang shot here inside Danny's privately owned broadcast studio in L.A. So on Sunday, a tough choice, Super Bowl or Boo Bowl? Why not watch both? All right, so if you don't already have a computer, I can't think of a better excuse to run out and get one. Better do it by Sunday. Ash now goes by her birth name and didn't respond to requests for interview. I only found one picture of her online relating to a wine and hiking club she's now in. The most downloaded woman on the internet in the 1990s is in a blue hoodie and sensible shoes. Her bio read, quote, After a chaotic professional career in Los Angeles, she needed to decompress and found there was nothing more relaxing, freeing and healing than exploring the outdoors. Gary too was freed from Stephen Cohen. Kind of. But the dot-com crash happened a few months before he got sex.com back. So when I got the site back... I decided I didn't want to be in the adult business in the same way everyone else was in the adult business. So I came up with this idea that I was going to turn it into an adult search engine. Gary toiled to make the site a success and he ended up pulling all-nighters and got hooked on speed in the process. He later told Wired magazine that he would stay up for five days in a row working on the site. I did read the article in Wired.com. It documents or talks about like you know, being on speed and giving tours of S&M dungeons. Like, is that true or is that... Yeah, there's a lot of truth to that. It sounds fun. Well, but it I, isn't I, that fun. It didn't really read that fun. And it, it wasn't. You know, yeah. What was Stephen Cohen's S&M dungeon like? He had, he had some issues around sex. When we got the house back, we found cameras and everything. 
I don't know what his obsession was. After trying the porn business and convent life, Lee Noga was looking for another path. And again, Ron Levy would play a part. He just reached out and he said something, why don't you just go fishing? And I only live about 30 miles from the coast. He bought me a boat. He bought me a boat. Long story short, I got a boat. Well, guess what? I got my captain's license right after the nunnery thing. And I found my next chase. I now have all these patents on the gear that makes them productive without the learning curve. I did it. This is my legacy. But this legacy wouldn't have happened had I not had the influence of Ron. Today, Noga is one of Florida's leading recreational shrimping experts. And she has fused science and technology to develop fishing lights, which increase shrimp harvest while blasting off nuisance bait and predator fish. My life turned right around to Ron because Ron was looking to go more mainstream. You know, even though he, he conquered the adult, but he was looking to move things out of that as if he knew, you know, it's not what he wanted anymore. Along with Lee and Ron, Gary too left the business and sold Sex.com in 2006 for around $14 million. It was the highest price ever paid for a domain name and an end to one of the most difficult periods of his life. Was all this enjoyable? Like, like were you enjoying it or were you just surviving it? You know, I, I like the business end of it. The, the, the boring stuff probably to you, but the, I wouldn't say the Sex.com days were the happiest days of my life. You know, at the end of the day, I think I was surviving it. I was just in the business. You know, that's my background. I'm a business and an engineer. I think it was amusing. There was a lot of downsides of being associated with the adult industry. It sounds, it sounds hot and sexy, but in reality, it ain't. For me, the disreputable part of the industry is probably not incorrectly uh, characterized. <laughs> Stephen Cohen ended up serving time in a Californian prison. Gary got some of Stephen's assets back as compensation, including a minority interest in a Mexican strip club and, ironically, ownership of a shrimp firm. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you liked it, please consider subscribing to the Irish Times. It's just one euro for the first month. If subscribing isn't for you, there's still loads of great writing on philosophy, media and culture on the irishtimes.com that you might be interested in that isn't behind a paywall. This podcast was made by me, Enzo Dowd, and head of audio in the Irish Times, Declan Conlon. Artwork is by Paul Scott, and the music is by Kirk Ozamo and Sergei Tremisov. <laughs>